Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Now, before we start the show, it should be noted that the host of this podcast tends to get a little bit enthusiastic about the subject matter. That's why we suggest that you don't have your volume levels too high. The host provides enough volume as it is. With that being said, listener protection is advised. Let's get on with it. Welcome to Robotech The McKinney Project, a celebration of the Robotech novels written by Brian Daly and James Lucino, with your host, JT. Welcomes you to another episode of Robotech the McKinney Project, a celebration of the Robotech novels as written by New York Times bestselling authors Brian Daly and James Luciano, together as the team of Jack McKinney. Our executive producer is Mick J. Our official website is www.robotechnovels.com. Of course, where you find the show notes for each and every episode. Our email address is robotechnovels at gmail.com. We are on iTunes. We're on Facebook. I want to thank everybody who has subscribed on iTunes. We broke the What's Hot list for TV and film podcast with episode number one. I definitely could not have done that without you. And I'm not, you know, I'm not afraid or ashamed to say it. We were definitely at the bottom third of it. Uh, Many other podcasts were ahead of us, but you know something? That we broke the What's Hot list. Definitely says something about the Robotech novels. They are alive and well amongst the fans around the world. So, Thank you so, so much to that. I wanted to give you guys an update on the website, www.robotechnovels.com. We added a special section called Novel Visuals. It's with each episode that we go, I throw pictures from different sources so that you can get an idea of the action that's going on in the story. The pictures come from comic books that have come out uh, in the years over uh, about Robotech, the RPGs, uh, even fan art. If you are a fan artist or you know someone that does fan art and they do art based on where we're at right now in the novels, hey, Send me a line, robotechnovels at gmail.com. I am all about the fan projects and definitely showcasing them because the Robotech fandom does have an incredible talent pool. And I said this back in episode zero, the, the fan artists and the fan fiction writers for Robotech will always have a place here on Robotech The McKinney Project. And I also want to thank everybody who has joined up on the Facebook page. We are growing and it's an open invitation to the best damn Robotech celebration there ever was. And that's a lot. Uh, Let me tell you, with episode number one, 
where episode zero was the introduction. And if you're a brand new listener, welcome first of all. My name's JT. I'm the host of Robotech the McKinney Project. But I do recommend that you listen to episode number uh, episode zero. Of course, episode number one. But listen to episode zero because that kind of covers everything that we're going to be doing on this podcast. Plus, I talk about topics that I will never, ever talk about again on this podcast. So that should be incentive enough. But seriously, uh, it, it kind of, it, it's, it's a broad scale of what we'll be covering, but it definitely gives you a good introduction to this podcast. Now with episode number one, it definitely, that was the start of, a, of our Robotech novels journey. And of course, it was my first step into the world of audio dramatic readings. And let me tell you something. I am very proud of what came out, and thank you for all the kind words through email, through Facebook. Uh, it's for me. I, I, I love. It's it's awesome to do, but let me tell you, it is not easy. And I said this on the last show, and it definitely it merits saying again. I've always had respect for actors, voice actors, people in the audiobook industry that do the readings for different books, novels. You find that all the time at, you know, at the bookstores and at the library. Uh, my respect for you grew 1,000 times, even more than that, 1 million times because it is not easy to do. I know there are people out there with with born talent on doing this and they, it definitely shows. I am not one of those people. To say that I recorded those readings in episode number one in one take, uh, no. There were, we went into the double digits when it comes to those readings. But as hard as it work as it was, and yeah, I will admit, it is kind of, it gets kind of frustrating, and that's, that's kind of my fault for trying to be the perfectionist, and I'm working seriously on that, and, uh, but when I was done, and I got to listen back, uh, to the readings that I did, I was like, not bad, JT, not bad, and it, as you guys noticed, I did add the element of background music and I'll talk about that in a little bit but uh, you know when it comes to dramatic readings audio or just acting in general wow that it requires a lot of work and uh, I wanted to say hello to uh, some Facebook friends who happen to be voice actors Richard Epcar, Greg Finley, Ellen Epcar, Rebecca Forstadt, Kira Buckland, um, Moises Palacios, Patricia Acevedo. Uh, these are people that are involved in the voice acting industry at different in, in different levels. And my my kudos to all of you because uh, it's it's an incredible you you bring characters on screen to life, right? and it's you know, you're definitely an inspiration. For this show, when it comes to my approach to the dramatic readings, and uh, once again, thank you to everybody all around the world for their their comments and their good wishes and uh, and their suggestions. And I definitely, you know, if you have any suggestions for the show, this podcast is a work in progress. It will keep on going through its evolution. We'll see what works. We'll see what doesn't. But definitely, uh, you know, if you have if you have anything that you'd like to suggest for the show. Show, or even you know excerpts from the novels that you would like to hear 
shoot me an email, robotechnovels at gmail.com. And coming soon, and I think it's going to come within the next couple episodes, we are going to make the casting call for you, the listener, to become the star of the podcast. That's right. People out there all around the world are going to get their chance to submit readings for the Robotech novels and to become a part of Robotech the McKinney Project experience. So uh, thank you once again. And, you know, as I like to say, it's Robotech Novels time, baby! This is episode number two, which we have titled The Visitor. And if you're following me through the novels, we are, of course, on novel number one, Genesis, and we'll be covering today chapters one, two, and the interlude. Now, I do want to remind everyone of how I approach the novels on this podcast. This is not an audiobook reading. I am not going to read every word in every novel. It's 21 of them, so I <laughs> I would wear out quite quickly. It's going to be a mix of personal narration and excerpt readings directly from the novels. Now, in our last show, we did read the entire prologue, and that's because... Uh, they are exclusive to the novels, just like the epigraphs at the beginning of each and every chapter in the Robotech novels. Those will be read in their entirety, but it's going to be a mix of you know, just me narrating what's going on and then reading different excerpts as we go along. Now, when I get to an excerpt reading, I will announce it. There will be a one to two second pause, and then the excerpt will start. And then when it finishes, you'll hear that one to two second pause before I start narrating again. So I just want to give you that quick heads up of how we are going to do uh, this podcast, how we will approach our novels. I know I've said it before, but it, it, it is it does deserve to be mentioned again. Now, uh, as I said, this is a work in progress. We started out with music in the background in our last episode, and you're going to hear more music in this episode, plus an occasional sound effect or two. Yeah, I'm, start, I'm starting to uh, expand, expand my horizons when it comes to these readings, and you know, the sky is the limit when it comes to to this and I'm really having fun. I'm really having fun experimenting with different types of music, different uh, ambient sounds, sound effects that'll fit the scene. So you're going to get some of that today. Now, when it comes to what we'll be reading about today, uh, back in episode number one, our reading was about, uh, you know, the prologue to novel number one, Genesis. And it talked about Zor, an alien genius who meets his destiny at the hands of his mortal enemies, the Invid. But before that happens, he dispatches his mile-long superdimensional fortress to a blue-white planet that he has seen in a vision that he's had, and that that blue-white planet will be the center point of events to come. Of course, that blue-white world is the Earth. Now, in this episode, of course, the, the dimensional fortress is on its way, but Earth already has problems of its own, as we will read about. But those will pale in comparison to a new factor that will be figured into the history of mankind. It will totally alter the history of it. And, you know, from there, we get the Robotech story. Now, uh, again, as we did in 
in, um, in episode number one, we'll be introduced to characters. Some we won't hear about again for a while, but they are important characters. Others will become impact players as of this episode. So what we'll do right now is take this quick break. And when we come back, more of Robotech, the McKinney Project. Robotech, the McKinney Project. Without further ado, guys and girls, sit back and enjoy. It's Robotech Novels time, baby. Chapter 1. Now, as we talked about in Episode 0, the chapters in the Robotech novel series begin with epigraphs. Uh, these are short passages that are taken from fictitious sources in the Robotech novels universe, such as encyclopedias, books, even quotes from the characters themselves, which is the case in the epigraph for Chapter Number 1, and it reads as follows. I had misgivings like everybody else, but I thought the appearance of SDF-1 just might be a good thing for the human race, after all when I saw how it scared the hell out of the politicians. Remark attributed to Lieutenant, Junior Grade, Roy Foker in Prelude to Doomsday, A History of the Global Civil War by Malachi Kane. Now the year is 1999, and for a blue-white planet, a planet called Earth, it's on a path of self-destruction. For the last 10 years, it's been involved in a global civil war, which started out as small skirmishes around the planet, but it's escalated to a point where borders and boundaries, once considered sovereign countries, are now open territory to the different factions involved. The call for unity is spearheaded by a World Unification Alliance. However, those that craved power and the rewards from it resisted, and everything pointed out to a thermonuclear solution where there would be no one to impose that power upon. Then came an event that would change the thinking of Homo sapiens forever. An object of never-before-seen proportions appeared in space out of nowhere and was about to make an impact on Earth in both a figurative and literal sense, now and for many years to come. Of course, this object being Zor's Dimensional Fortress, and its descent to Earth caused death and destruction with its shockwaves, where hundreds of cities were pummeled and destroyed, and many, many died. It also created a mass hysteria of end-time proportions. Thousands thinking that the time of repentance had come also committed suicide when the object made its approach. As the object slowed, it chose as its crash landing site a small island in the South Pacific once the site of French atomic tests. The name of this island? Macross. The ship, which shortly after its appearance was called The Visitor, appeared to be heavily damaged and there was no sign of life from it, at least from the outside. The global civil war now became a very, very minor argument compared to this new equation in the history of mankind. 
quick alliances were formed by the different warring factions, and a very hard truce was reached as preparations began for an expedition of Earth's new artifact. We're introduced to the character of Roy Foker. Tall, blonde, and a fighter pilot to his bones, believing in the honor and code of combat. Also, a member of what became the Internationalist Skull Squadron. The Internationalists were a part of the World Unification Alliance uh, during the war. And he is also going to be a part of the exploration party that is headed by Chopper to the crash site. Piloting the Chopper is T.R. Edwards. Now... Uh, this episode, you'll hear a lot about him, but then it will be a while before we hear from him again, but he is a very important character in the Robotech novels universe. Now, he's Foker's complete opposite and antagonist in every which way. They fought each other during the global civil war, and now since truces have been made, uh, you know, now they're on the same side, so to speak. And that antagonism is shown in the following excerpt. Edwards caught the glance. Wanna take over, Foker? Be my guest. No thanks, Colonel. I'm just here to make sure you don't mess up and spike us into the drink. Edwards laughed. Foker, you know what your problem is? You take this war stuff too personally. Tell me something. Do you like flying for a bunch of fascists? Edwards snorted derisively. You think that there's that much difference between sides after 10 years of war? Besides, the nations pay me more in a week than you make in a year. Roy wanted to answer that, but his orders were to avoid friction with Edwards. As if to remind him of that, a sudden aroma wafted under his nose. It was pipe tobacco, but to Roy it always smelled like a silk factory on fire. Global was at it again, but how do you tell your commanding officer that he's breaking regs, smoking aboard an aircraft? If you're a wise young lieutenant, junior grade, you do not. Roy turned back to study Macross and forgot Global, Edwards, and everything else. There lay the blackened remains of a ship like nothing Earth had ever seen before. Great God, Roy said slowly, and even Edwards had nothing to add. Leading the search party is Captain Henry Global, a commander in the World Unification Alliance and a Russian of cool capabilities. The radiation around the wreck has gone down to levels that permit this investigation. As the chopper lands and preparations are made to explore, a Lance Corporal Murphy gets too close to an opening he discovers on the ship and then is pulled in by a set of metal tentacles into the unknown fortress. Already a team member down, the decision is made to bring in Earth's most renowned mind for a more scientific approach to this expedition. Dr. Emil Wang as a result of the new way of galactic thinking, has become an invaluable commodity to those in power who want to know more about the visitor and what ultimately to do with it. Lang as curious as any scientific mind would be in front of a mile-long alien ship, sends a remote human-sized robot drone into the entry that sucked in Murphy. By some way, the entrance opens again at the drone's presence, but strangely, it stops responding to any of Lang's commands. But now, the search party has a way in. He orders everyone into anti-radiation suits, and he makes it clear how the soldiers are to proceed as the novel tells. Get those spotlights on, Lang instructed, and you may chamber around in your weapons, but leave the safeties on. If anyone fires without my direct order, I'll see that he's court-martialed and hung. 
Unnoticed, T.R. Edwards made a wry face inside his suit helmet and flicked his submachine gun selector over to full auto. From the expedition party, eight Marines are selected along with Foker, Global, Edwards, and Lang to explore the ship, with a number of Marines left outside to stand guard. Now, in the dark interior of the ship, it was of monumental scale, and a series of complex materials around it, conduit-like structures, and a construction that gave a feel of some sort of fantastic purpose for this vessel. Now, the team going in divides itself into two groups, with Foker leading one with four Marines, Global, Edwards, and Lang in the other with another four. At the same time, the drone that was left at the entrance, the one that stopped responding to Lang's commands, begins its own way into the fortress, on its own and in a more animated fashion. After about a 15-minute trek through the interior, Foker's group becomes Earth's first inhabitants to come into direct contact with an extraterrestrial construct, but of the destructive kind, as Jack writes. Roy was about to get them moving again when he heard someone calling softly. Carruthers, hey man, where you at? Carruthers was the man walking drag at the rear of the file. They all turned back to see what was going on. Carruthers had fallen far behind for some reason, but he was rejoining them, his spots getting nearer. But something about the man's movement wasn't normal. Moreover, his head hung limply, and he appeared to be moving considerably above them, as if on a catwalk. They flashed their beams his way, and stood rooted in astonishment and stark terror. Carruthers' body hung on a line, like a tiny puppet, held in the hand of a humanoid metal monster seventy feet tall. The armored behemoth swung its free hand in their direction. They didn't have time for permission to react. They wouldn't have listened if Lang had denied it anyway. Roy and the Gunny and the other Marines opened fire, the chatter of their submachine guns aloud in their ears. Their tracers lit up in the darkness as the bullets bounced off the monster's armor as if they were paperclips. Its right hand loosed a stream of reddish-orange fury. The Marine disappeared like a zapped bug, turned into ash in an instant. Chapter 2 The epigraph reads as follows. I suppose in the back of my mind I was aware that fate had sent my way a chance to be mentioned in the same breath with Einstein, Newton, and the rest. But to tell the truth, I thought little of that. Before the lure of so much new knowledge, any scientist would have made poor old Faust look like a saint. Dr. Emil Lang, Technical Recordings and Notes Roy and what remained of his team empty their weapons on the weapon aimed at them. Another soldier is killed, but somehow Roy and the remaining Marine are able to destroy the metal giant. Strangely enough, though, even the remaining pieces are still moving as though the monster was still alive. Moments later, a second armored behemoth appears, but to examine the remains of the first. Roy and the remaining soldier make their escape as another surprise falls upon them in an already insane situation that McKinney relates. They could have polished us all off, Lieutenant, the gunny said. Roy shook his head, just as confused as the Marine. Maybe they're hurting us along somewhere, I don't know. They took up their way again. Roy's hearing was coming back, accompanied by a painful ringing. Maybe they don't want to kill all of us because... The gunny screamed a curse. Roy looked down to see that the deck plates were rippling around their legs like a running stream engulfing them. Meanwhile, in another part of the fortress, Global's group marvels at the complex architecture of the alien ship. It's as if though it keeps changing in appearance as they keep moving. Also, T.R. Edwards finds out the fate of Corporal Murphy, as the novel describes. 
Edwards was back in moments, face as white as his teeth. You better brace yourselves, Edwards swallowed with difficulty. I found Murphy, but it's a little hard to take. He swallowed again to keep from vomiting. One by one, they went to join him at the entrance to the next compartment, from which an intense light shone. Lang caught the edge of the hatch to steady himself when he saw what was there. In a large translucent tank wired with various life support systems floated the various pieces of Lance Corporal Murphy in a tiny sea of sluggish nutrient fluid. They drifted lazily, here an arm, there the head, sightless eyes wide open, a severed hand bumping gently against a stripped torso. The fluid was filled with fine strands glowing in incandescent greens. Tiny amoeba-like globules flocked to the body parts and away from them again feeding and providing oxygen and removing wastes. Global turned to the Marine behind him. Establish security! Whoever did this may still be around! The men shook off their paralysis and rushed to obey. All that is but one, who was about to pluck out a leg by a white wrinkled foot that had bobbed to the surface. We can't leave him like this! Through the grinding war, the Marines had maintained their honor and their high traditions proudly. Esperita Corps was like the air they breathed. To leave one of their own on the battlefield was to leave a part of themselves. But Lang pulled the grunt back with surprising strength. Don't touch him! Who knows what the solution is? You want to end up pickled in there too? No? Good. Then just draw a specimen with this device and be careful. Shortly after this, Global's team had their own encounter with the metal giants that Foker's team contended with. They fight it out as the floor beneath them begins to move up to a new level, and by some sort of luck, or alien plan, they are reunited with Foker and his lone teammate. The next site is one that even brings more intrigue. Though large in size, it is an area that seems to be adapted to human-sized scale and with something of a command center. The novel gives us the following description. Zor's quarters were as he had left them, so long ago and far away. The sleep module, the workstation, and the rest were built to human scale and function. Lang stared around himself as if in a dream. Despite the many objects and installations that were impossible to identify, there was a certain comprehensibility to the place. Here a desk unit, there a screen of some kind. Roy, Global, and the others were so fascinated that they didn't notice what Lang was doing until they heard the pop and crisp of static. Lang, you fool! Get away from there! Join us in two weeks for the conclusion. Whoa, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I would not end on a cliffhanger. Would I? Maybe some other time, but not on this episode. We are definitely going to come back to the conclusion of today's Robotech novel reading a little bit later in the podcast. But coming up next, a new segment, The Comics Connection. And the best way to describe it... It's where Genesis meets Genesis, but we'll first take this 30-second pause and we'll be back for more of our Robotech The McKinney Project.
guys and girls from War of Robotech, the McKinney Project, and with a brand new segment, The Comics Connection. It's short and sweet, and I like it, so we'll keep that title. And let me tell you something, the Robotech Novels universe is so connected with the Robotech Comics universe in so many ways that... This will definitely be a recurring segment on this podcast. And I don't think that there's any better way to begin our first Comics Connection segment than with Genesis meeting Genesis. Because Robotech, the novel Genesis, was not the first uh, Robotech work to be called that. There was actually a graphic novel that went by the name of Robotech, the graphic novel, but the title of the story was Genesis Robotech. It's based on a plot by ser- original series producer Carl Masick, written by Mike Barron, penciled by Neil D. Vokes, inked by Ken Stesey, lettered by Bob Pinaha, colored by Tom Vincent, production done by Bain City Studio, and edited by Diana Schutz. Now, the cover art is done by Ken Stesey also. Let me tell you something. It's really sharp. I like it. And you can you can see it over at www.robotechnovels.com. Now, let me read you the last two paragraphs of the introduction that Carl Masick, uh, that Carl Masick says. Uh, and it goes directly into what the story is about. The plot of the graphic novel clears up many points in the prehistory of the Robotech mythology. It tells the story of the decisions which led to the appearance of the SDF-1. It tells of the final days of Zor. It also functions as an untold story which deals with the early career of Roy Foker and his arch-enemy, Colonel T.R. Edwards. Genesis Robotech tells the story of the first mission of the United Earth Government into the mysterious smoldering ruins of an alien ship a ship which crashed onto a tiny island in the South Pacific and would eventually change the course of human history. It is the first step in the continuing development of the Robotech universe, and it seems fitting that Kimiko, Harmony Gold's first Robotech licensee, should present the tale. The graphic novel is all new. It draws upon the original story of Robotech and fills in many gaps and gray areas. Mike Barron, Neil Vokes, and Ken Stesey should be commended for their loving attention to detail and their willingness to participate in the birth of new Robotech concepts. This is not the end of the story. The adventures of the Robotech Defenders will continue in novels, comics, movies, and television series. The best is yet to come. Carl Masick, West Hollywood, California. Hey, they had the novels already planned at this point. That's an exciting thing to know that you know, the novels was always in the works for the marketing of Robotech. And 25 years later, the kid from Chicago is doing this. But getting into the actual graphic novel itself. In our last episode, we talked about the prologue and where Zor gets killed by the Invid, Britai gets injured, uh, the Dimensional Fortress is sent to Earth, uh, he has his vision. That is covered for the most part in the graphic novel. There are some differences uh, when it comes to, you don't see Britai getting hurt, you don't see the origin of his crystal piece on his head. Uh, the vision that Zor, Zor has to send the Dimensional Fortress to Earth, it's not mentioned directly. It is ambiguously mentioned. It is kind of touched upon, but not really in a direct sense. There's more interaction between Dolza, the Commander-in-Chief of the Zentradi, with the... Um, with the Robotech Masters, and you have the backstory of Colonel 
T.R. Edwards and Roy Foker. These guys are total uh, arch enemies in the global civil war. And of course, you have the appearance of the Dimensional Fortress on Earth. It goes into a little bit more detail of that and the mission to explore it. Now, a lot of the concepts which we've read and which we will be reading do appear in the graphic novel albeit in a little bit more detail. There is one big difference, though, and we haven't touched upon that. That's going to come on the second reading. Something happens to Dr. Emil Lang, which only happens in the novels. It does not happen in this graphic novel. So that is a very big difference. Lang's attitude is the same, but the the event that happens in the novels really sets the course for his own destiny in the Robotech story. So, uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the artwork, hey, I like it, and I'm not a nitpicker in terms of, oh my God, these are so archaic, and that the 80s, you know, this is from 1986, and blah 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 blah. No, I am not, you know. I am, just like Carl was, I'm appreciative of all the guys that and girls that worked on this because it definitely inspired Brian Daly and Jim Lucino to include it in the Robotech novel. So it definitely makes a great connection with the Robotech story being told in the novels. Now, when it comes to availability... Uh, this was published in 1986. It has not been reissued. Uh... <sighs> I'm trying to think here. eBay is going to be your best bet. Uh, I think a few years ago, there was a re-release of the Macross saga of the Kamiko comics. And I believe Robotech, the graphic novel, was included. But don't quote me on that. I, I'm just guesstimating there. But when it comes to availability on eBay, there, there are quite a few. So you, you could definitely get your hands on one. It's definitely a good addition to your Robotech library. And that completes our Comics Connection segment. And, I'm, I, I, you know, the fact that... The fact that the novels were already in their planning stage when they were doing this graphic novel, you know, that just, you know, it, it's just incredible. I'm telling you that 25 years later, here I am doing a podcast on it. Who would have thought? Who would have thought the kid from Chicago would do something like this? But I'm very happy to present this podcast to you, as I always keep telling you guys. But enough of that. We will come back in about 30 seconds for the conclusion of our Robotech readings for today, here on Robotech The McKinney Project. and girls and where we last left off in our reading Dr. Emil Lang was being a little bit curious with uh, Earth's new visitor and Captain Global wasn't liking that too much but without further ado it's Robotech Novels time baby Lang, you fool! Get away from there! 
But before Global could tear him away from the console, Lang had somehow discovered how to activate it. Waves of distortion chased each other across the screen. Then, a face appeared among the wavering lines. Global's grip on Lang's jacket became limp. Good God, it's human! Not quite, perhaps, but close, I would say, Lang conceded calmly. Zor's face stared out of the screen. The wide, almond eyes seemed to look at each man in the compartment, and the mouth spoke in a melodious, chiming language unlike anything the humans had ever heard before. It's a greetings recording, Lang said matter-of-factly. Like those plates and records on the old Voyagers, Roy murmured. The alien's voice took on a different tone, and another image flashed on the screen. The humans found themselves looking at an invid shock trooper in action, firing and rending. Some kind of war machine. Nasty, Lang interpreted. As they were mesmerized by Zor's message, the drone robot, which had made its own entrance into the ship earlier, comes through the way in which they were all herded there themselves. Lang approaches the drone and opens the circuit board panel, and is astounded to find that the robot has gone through a change, which is described in the following excerpt. They all crowded around warily, ready to blast the machine to bits. This isn't the original circuitry, Lang said, sounding interested, but not frightened. The components are reshaping themselves. As they stared, wires rift and microchips changed like a miniaturized urban renewal project seen from above by time-lapse photography. Things slid, folded, altered shape and position. It reminded Roy of an unlikely cross between a blossoming flower and those kids' games where the player slides alphanumeric tiles around into new sequences. With all that has happened in viewing Zor's warning message, along with the changes in the drone robot, it is Dr. Lang's conclusion that Earth best be prepared for more visitors. A lot more. Seeing the now-animated drone as their only possible means of escape, the team gets ready to move. At the same moment, Lang ventures back to the compartment's control center. He is madly curious to see what powers the console. It is at this moment Lang experiences something that will change his life forever and set on course his destiny in the Robotech novel saga. Jack McKinney describes. He had been right. This was the ship's nerve center, and the council and its peripherals were the nucleus of it all. Lang began form function analysis, fearing that he would never get another chance to study it. Certainly, the ship used no source of power that he could conceive of. Some uncanny alien force coursed through the fallen ship and through the council. Perhaps, if he could get some data on it or get access to it... <coughs> at Lang's cry, they all turned with guns raised, as strobing light threw their shadows tall against the bulkheads. The command center flashed and flowed with power like an unearthly network of electronic blood vessels. The console was surrounded by a blinding aura of harsh radiance that pulsed through the spectrum. Lang, body convulsed in agony, holding fast to the console, shone with those same colors as the enigmatic forces flooding into him. Don't touch him, Global barked at Roy, who'd been about to attempt a body check to knock Lang clear. Edwards moved to one side, well out of range of the discharges, to get a line of fire on the console that wouldn't risk hitting Lang. Edwards made sure his selector was on full auto and prepared to empty the magazine into the console. But before he could, the alien lightning died away. Lang slumped slowly to the deck.
The drone robot begins to move, as does the team, with Roy carrying the unconscious Lang over his shoulder. The ship seems to be reconfiguring itself like the circuit panel on the robot, and now it offers the biggest surprise of all in the following excerpt. It was something straight out of legend. The skeleton was still wearing a uniform that was obviously immune to decay. It also wore a belt and harness affair fitted with various devices and pouches. But for the fact that it would have stood some 50 feet tall, it could have been human. The jaw was frozen open in an eternal rictus of agony and death. An area the size and shape of a poker table was burned through the back of its uniform, fringed by blackened fabric. Much of the skeletal structure in the wound's line of fire was gone. Must have been some scrap, a marine said quietly, knowingly. Lang was struggling, so Roy let him down. Are you all right, Doc? Roy gaped at him. Lang's eyes had changed, becoming all dark, deep pupils with no iris and no white at all. He had the look of a man in rapture, gazing around himself with measureless approval. Yes, yes, Lang said, nodding in comprehension. I see! What is left of the search team's amazement is canceled by more alien weapons fire as they battle it through to escape their predicament. Now that is the end of chapter two. Now in this novel, there is an interlude, so you can call it a chapter 2.5 because it does have its own epigraph, and it reads as follows. Listen, take the Bill of Rights, the Boy Scout Oath, and the Three Laws of Robotics and stick them where there's no direct dialing, jerk. Good is anything that helps me stay at the top. Bad is whatever doesn't. Got it? Senator Russo to his re-election committee treasurer. Now the search party does eventually make it out of the ship. Global makes his report to one of the brass in the surging power structure of Earth, Admiral Hayes, and it's pointed out that there's very one strange detail. While Global calculates his time inside the fortress around six hours, personnel waiting outside the ship had only 15 minutes go by between entry and exit. The whole report is of little interest to Senator Russo, who is to become, no matter by what means, the head of the new emerging world government, no matter who had what title. His way of thinking is clearly laid out in the following excerpt. The timing of the crash was indeed astounding. Not a month before, these same men had been part of a group that had met to lay the groundwork for one of the most treacherous plots in history. It's true they were confronting the ultimate crisis the likelihood that the human race would destroy itself. But their solution was not the most benign, just the one that would be most profitable for them. They'd been intent on creating an artificial crisis, something that would stop the war and unite humanity under their leadership. A number of promising scenarios had been developed, including epidemics, worldwide crop failure, and a much less spectacular version of the very thing that had taken place in Earth's atmosphere and on Macross Island. Russo's smile was close to a leer. Gentlemen, I don't believe I'm being presumptuous when I say this is destiny at work. The blindest fool can see that mankind must band together. Under our rule was the unstated subtext. Russo saw that the true power brokers there understood, while Hayes and a few other idealistic dupes were almost teary-eyed with dedication and courage. Suckers. 
It had never really mattered to the power brokers what side they served, of course. The ideologies and historical causes of the global civil war meant little or nothing to them. Russo's and others like him had given those mere lip service. The important thing was to use the opportunity to gain prestige and power. Russo had joined the internationalists, the World Peace and Disarmament Movement, because they offered personal opportunity. If they hadn't, he would have thrown in with the factionalists without a qualm, so long as they promised him a route to power. Hayes was saying, We must act with all possible speed, throw every available resource into understanding the science behind that ship, into rebuilding it, and using this amazing robo-technology as Dr. Lang insists on calling it. Absolutely beautiful, Russo thought. An enormous tax-supported defense project, more expensive and more massive than anything in human history. The opportunities for profit would be incalculable. In the meantime, the military could be kept distracted and obedient, and all the political power would be consolidated. More, this incredible robo-technology business would ensure that the new world government would be absolutely unchallengeable. Now, Russo saw Admiral Hayes as an obedient soldier, but prone to being honest and a possible problem in the future. He's already scheming that if necessary, he can use the Admiral's daughter, Lisa, as a bargaining chip. He also saw that T.R. Edwards would have his uses too, because he thinks like Russo. Get whatever you can on your enemies for the moment you can take them out of the game. Permanently. Dr. Lang, with his new eyes that would ultimately help him direct the course of robotechnology, makes his entrance into the room and affirms to all those present that this miracle, as they refer to it, can and will be rebuilt. But he also gives a prophetic statement to the men that would rule the planet. In Jack McKinney's words? Before Russo could say anything, Lang continued, But you used the word miracle. I suppose that may be true. But I want to tell all of you something that Captain Glovel said to me when we finally fought our way out of the ship. He waited a dramatic moment, as his whiteless eyes seemed to take in the whole conference room and look beyond. Glovel said, This will save the human race from destroying itself, Doctor, and that makes it a kind of miracle. But history and legend tell us that miracles bear a heavy price. So there you have it. What is a miracle for some? An opportunity for prestige and power by others? For one Captain Henry Global, it is. it might be a prelude to more catastrophic events in the future. A heavy price to pay for this miracle. Will that be the case? Well, you're going to have to tune in to the next episode to find out. For episode three, fireworks. Yes, I like to have titles ahead of time for the episodes to this podcast. Uh, now, when it comes to the characters that we've been introduced to so far, I can tell you right now, Foker, Global, they're going to have a heavy hand in what's to come. Emil Lang here and there, but uh, his character grows as the novels move along. Now, when it comes to T.R. Edwards and Senator Russo, let me tell you something about Senator Russo. He is one of those characters that you grow to hate, and that just makes me admire Brian and Jim more of how they present Russo. 
Russo is a character that will pop up throughout the Robotech novel saga when you least expect it and perhaps when you least want it to. And that's the beauty of it because, you know, just when you think a character may be gone, they make an appearance. But each one of those characters, Russo and Edwards, have their their primary roles to play in the Robotech novel saga. And, of course, as we move along with our journey, we're going to get to know more characters. I think we're going to get to know a lot more characters in our next episode. But I want to thank you all for being a part of this journey once again. I'm having fun with it. Uh, It it is kind of, how would you put it? It is tiresome uh, in terms of that I am totally spent after I do the the novel readings because my throat is shot. I do not have a future as a voice actor or as an audiobook creator. I think you got to have a special type of voice. And if at any point my voice does go during the readings, I do apologize and I do hope that you understand. But, you know, I'm excited for what's to come because I'm experimenting more with sound effects, as you heard, more music, and it's going to be one hell of a ride, guys and girls. And I, I do, I, you have no idea, words cannot express my appreciation for you guys taking time out of your day to listening. And I know I say that a lot, but get used to it because I am one grateful, crazy kid from Chicago that talks about Robotech novels. So that's going to do it for us. Remember, check us out at www.robotechnovels.com. Drop me an email, robotechnovels at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes. Join the Facebook page for the best damn Robotech celebration there ever was. It's Robotech Novels time, baby. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Robotech The McKinney Project. Robotech The McKinney Project is produced by McJ, hosted by JT. Robotech is a trademark of Harmony Gold USA. Sorry, can't do nothing about that, guys and girls. See you next show. Bye-bye!